Micah chapter 7. We're going to begin the last chapter of this book. Well, in chapter 6, we had a court scene where God had a controversy with His people. God asked them, O my people, what have I done unto thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. And then God reminded them of how He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He kept them safe. He brought them out of slavery. He gave them prophets, namely Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, to go before them. He reminded them of the time when Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel, but instead of a curse, Israel received a blessing. God can take a curse and turn it, a would-be curse, turn it into a blessing. He reminds them of this that took place in between Shittim and Gilgal, that last encampment in the wilderness and that first encampment in the promised land. And so in two verses, God covers His watch care over them for the entire wilderness wanderings. And He reminds them it was because of His righteousness. They didn't deserve it. They were stiff-necked. They were hard-hearted. They rebelled against God. But because God made a promise to their fathers, and God keeps His word, because of God's righteousness, He watched over them. He protected them, and He saw them into the land. In response to God's controversy with them, the people, they supposed that the answer to pleasing God would be more sacrifices. Let's just offer more sacrifices. Let's, let's up our religious observance. Let's do more religiously. Maybe God will be pleased with that. And we would, I guess in today's terms, say uh, we would just up our Christian service. And somehow God's going to be uh, now pleased with us despite the fact that we still have all this sin attached to our lives that we are refusing to get rid of. And so I think they were pretty snarky in their response to God. Well, if we just give you the, the fruit of our, or the, or the firstborn, will that make you happy? It's almost like they are accusing God of nothing is ever good enough for Him. But then God says, I've shown you what is required. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. He, he made it clear. God said, I want your obedience. I don't want your sacrifice. Amen. And then in the second half of chapter 6, God further laid out His indictment against them. He shows how they were not doing justly because they did have false balances and deceitful weights. They were robbing people of their inheritance and their land. And, and then He says, you're not doing... Uh, you're, you're not loving mercy because you're full of violence. You're taking things by violence. And you're not walking humbly with your God because you still have the statutes of Omri and Ahab, which were two wicked kings, father-son duo, that ruled over the house of Israel. And all they did was increase the idolatry that Jeroboam had initiated back when the kingdom split in two. And so God, He makes it very clear, you're not doing what's required of you. You're not doing what's good, what I want you to do. And now with that court scene closed, as we open in chapter 7, we find Micah the prophet, he's speaking out and he's, he's lamenting over the sad state of his people because of their corruption. Let's read verses 1 through 6 of Micah 7. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits 
and the grape gleanings of the vintage. There's no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man has perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desires, so they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So Micah, he begins with this phrase, Woe is me. The word woe, it, it just means to be well, to lament. It's a, it's a state of deep sorrow and grief. He's in the place of mourning. And as we'll see, he laments the lack of righteous people in the land. Does that sound familiar to our day? In chapter 1 and verse 1, we're told Micah prophesied in the days of Jotham and Hezekiah, and those were good kings, but it also says he prophesied in the days of Ahaz. Ahaz was a wicked king. He did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, the Bible says. And I bring this up to suggest to you that Micah's lamenting here in chapter 7 likely takes place during the reign of of Ahaz. He was a king over the house of Judah. This was a time period of great unrest in the land. Let me read you a couple passages here, actually three, I think. Isaiah 7, 1, it says, And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So there's this, this unrest with military unrest with the enemy coming into the land. Second, uh, Second Chronicles 28, verses 1 through 8, it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the king of Israel, the kings of Israel, and made also molten images for Balaam. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Wherefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. And they smote him and carried away a great multitude of them captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel who smote him with a great slaughter. For Pekah, the son, of, the son of Remaliah, slew in Judah an hundred and twenty thousand in one day, which were all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And Zikri, or Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Maaseah, the king's son, and Azricam, the governor of the house, and Elkanah, that was next to the king, 
And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and took also away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. One last passage here to give you a picture of the days in which Micah was living. 2 Kings 16, verses 5 through 9. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drave the Jews from Elath, and the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tilgath... Man, that's a long name, and I always get tongue-twisted. Tilgath... Peleser, king of Assyria, that's pretty good, amen? All right, well, um, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present unto the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up to Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Ker and slew Rezin. Now, I read you those three passages to just highlight, it was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. The house of Israel, or the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, had split into two houses, house of Israel and house of Judah, and now they're having a civil war. They're fighting amongst each other. And while they're fighting amongst each other, they're looking to other nations to help their cause. And so you had the the house of Israel. They were using the Syrians. The house of Judah was using the Assyrians. And they were having this huge fight over this land. And it was all because of their wickedness. It was all because they had forsaken God. The house of Judah, they're in the midst of enduring the reign of a of a wicked king. <laughs> so much I want to say there, amen. Sometimes we have good presidents and sometimes we have wicked presidents. And somehow presidents can just all of a sudden now sign executive orders. <laughs> I don't know where, how this started and how it became so easy to do, but uh, listen, we're no longer a republic. I mean, a president can just sign... How many did he sign in the first week? I forget. Over 30, something like that, or in two days? Something ridiculous. Um, And so they're enduring a a wicked king. They've got Ahaz reigning over them, and this guy's a mess. He's burning his children in the fire, and he's spreading idolatry throughout the land. And he's even going to the temple and taking the gold and silver out of the temple to pay the king of Assyria to be on his side. And so all of this is really setting the stage for the Assyrians to take the house of Israel captive in time. In fact, it would be during Ahaz's reign that the Assyrians would, they would storm through the house of Israel. And the Bible records that they got all the way to the front door, if you will, of Jerusalem. They got outside the walls of Jerusalem. They're encamped out there ready to take Jerusalem, but God prevented that. And that's why we were reading but they could not overcome Ahaz. They, they, God didn't allow Jerusalem to fall during that time. And so the point, the point in all of this that I'm trying to highlight is, Micah, he's watching all of this unfold in his lifetime. He's there. He's observing it. He's watching as the house of Israel is, is being taken captive. 
I mean, could you imagine viewing all this? He's watching his kinsmen fight each other. He's watching as they look to foreign nations for help. And that's something God said, don't ever do. But trust in me. That's what God wanted them to do. So it's a mess. And as Micah sees all this taking place, he says, woe is me. He's overcome with this grief and this sorrow that has gotten to this point in the land. How could it have gotten to this point? Paul said of his kinsmen in Romans 9, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse for, from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. His heart broke for the lost. Micah sees the wickedness in the land and he understands that their sins are going to lead to destruction and captivity at the hands of their enemies. Um, he understands God's judgment is on the way. And as he observes how wicked men prevail everywhere, he doesn't find any righteousness whereby God may spare them of this impending, severe judgment to come. Remember, Abraham asked the Lord over in Genesis 18, Lord, if you find 50 righteous, will you spare the, the city? I'm sure you're familiar with the account. Abraham keeps working that number lower. Lord, for 10 righteous sake, he gets all the way down to 10. Would you, would you not destroy the city for 10 righteous people? But there wasn't even 10 righteous people. Because God did destroy. He did rain down brimstone and fire from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plains thereof. And Micah, he's looking over this situation in his day, and it's figuratively as if there weren't even ten righteous. And this is the opening statement here that, that he's getting at, this opening verse. He, he, listen, he's got a concern for the sinner. Woe is me. Paul said, I, I wish I was a curse for my kinsmen, or, or that I could be a curse for my kinsmen, but obviously he couldn't. He was in Christ, but that's a whole other thing. Micah here, I just wish people could see. And, and what we find here is that there's a concern for the sinner, but understand this, Micah knew that even though there was a concern for the sinner, it didn't dismiss the judgment that must come against, which must come against them for their sin. You see what I'm trying to say? We, we can have pity upon the sinner. We can want to reach them. We can want them to be saved. But it doesn't negate the fact that we have to proclaim God's word and say this leads to judgment. This leads to destruction and captivity. This leads to problems in your life. And so our attitude ought to be the same as Micah's here. We should be concerned at the fate of the sinner and of our sinful nation. It should move us to lament, but it should not prevent us from pronouncing the judgment to come for our sinfulness either. Micah goes on in verse 1. He uses the allegory of harvesting. The first fruits were the choicest and best fruits. Those are the, those are the ones God said, honor me with your first fruits, the best that you have. And, and he says, there was no cluster to be found. And the picture that Micah is painting here is, there was not an abundance of honorable people. There was not a bunch of righteous people in the land. And it would seem as if Micah is feeling similar to Elijah who complained to God, I, only I am left. 
And, of course, God had to let Elijah know, no, I've still got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But there were no clusters. There was no societies of, of good men around. Now, certainly there would have been those still that had not bowed the knee to Baal. Amen. God's always had a remnant. Hallelujah. There's always been a remnant. And so I, I'm, I'm sure there were some righteous people in those days. I don't think, though the picture is, is very bleak, I'm sure there were some. Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah. He was certainly a righteous man. And so there were those who were doing right. And, and I'm sure there were some other people doing well. But this is speaking figuratively of the whole. And we find this a lot in the Bible when we're talking about um, a people nationally. Isaiah 17.6, again, prophesying during the same time as Micah, Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it as the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. In other words, Isaiah is saying there's not many left. There's not many of us left. There's two or three in, in high places. There's four or five off to the side. Uh, there's not a lot of us here that are serving God and, and what I find interesting is this is a sentiment that almost every generation holds to. Almost every generation says, well, I wish we could go back to the good old days. And yet it's been far worse. <laughs> As I was reading uh, Matthew Henry's opinion, I, I found it intriguing what he wrote. And, and understand, he lived from 1662 to 1714. The good old days, right? The Puritan days. Listen to what he, he said. When we read and hear of the wisdom and zeal, the strictness and conscientiousness, the devotion and charity of the professors of religion in former ages, and see the reverse of this in those of the present age, we cannot but sit down and wish with a sigh, oh, for primitive Christianity again. Where are the plainness and integrity of those that went before us? Where are the Israelites indeed without guile? Our souls desire them, but in vain. The golden age is gone. And past recall, we must make the best of what is, for we are not likely to see such times as have been. Man, that was in like the early 1700s. And even Matthew Henry was saying... Man, it, it just stinks today. <laughs> I wish we could go back. That's what he was saying. And, and all of us sometimes think, boy, it'd be nice if we could go back. Anyway, every generation seems to have this. And it's like, it's like we all think our generation is the worst. Oh, it's just getting worse. It's just getting worse. Listen, it's been far worse before. Amen. Don't believe me. Read your Bible. I mean, listen, two angels go to Sodom to get Lot out of there, and they try to beat down the door to rape the two angels that came. And Lot's got the bright idea, here's my two virgin daughters, have them instead. Read over there in Judges where the concubine gets abused all night and the master chops her up in 12 pieces and sends her to the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. It's been worse. Amen. Just go back to the first century when almost all of Christians were enslaved in Rome. Yeah, well, we just got it so bad today. Do we really? Do we really? Yeah, it's getting worse. I'll give you that. But just consider the days of Noah. God said, 
I see the wickedness of man that is evil continually. That's what's on their heart all the time. It was so bad then, he destroyed the earth with a flood. But it grieved God at his heart, and only Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So it may seem bad in our day, but it's been far worse. It was worse in Micah's day than it is in our day, and it was worse in Noah's day than it was in Micah's day. And we could keep rattling off examples there. But I guess what I'm saying is we don't have to sit around and get the poochy lip and act like, you know, well, it's never going to get better. We're in the last days. Listen, God can still send revival. I believe He still wants to. But we're not willing to live for Him. So we're always just one generation away from greater blessings or greater cursing. It's up to us how we want to, to live for God. Well, anyway, Micah goes on in verse 2. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. So there wasn't just a lack of righteousness, but there was an advancement of evil. And evil will always prevail when righteous people don't do what God's told them to do. Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. If all we do is sit around and, and woe is me, um, yeah, evil's going to prevail. You know why the mandate actually had to be taken all the way to Supreme Court? Because not enough people are saying, no, I don't think so. Why? Good men do nothing, evil prevails. Amen. And that's what we're seeing in our day. We've got all this junk out there because nobody's standing up and fighting back. Abortion's been legal now for how many decades? How many millions of babies have been murdered in the womb? We don't care. It's not our kid. Lack of righteousness, evil prevails. Micah's clear there's a lack of good men in his day. And this is interesting in light of what Isaiah said. According, <laughs> I found this thought very intriguing. According to what Isaiah said, the lack of righteous people is an indication that judgment's on the way. That God is removing righteous people out of the land because He didn't want them to go through the judgment. Now, this is interesting to me, and I'm not saying this is anything to hang our hats on. But Isaiah 57, 1, it says, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Isn't that interesting? And, and this is a principle that, as I was thinking upon this, we see this throughout the Word of God. God secured Noah before he poured out his wrath. God removed Lot before destruction. God used persecution to scatter the believers in first century Jerusalem because he was going to destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. And God's obviously, he's going to rapture out believers before he pours out his wrath. We find this principle in King Josiah's day too. Uh, he, and, and remember, Josiah, he was one who reigned after Micah's day. But, but listen to what this says. In 2 Kings 22, 19 and 20, Because thine heart was tender, talking about Josiah, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou hearest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into the grave in peace, and thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. So we see this principle of God 
allowing the righteous to die off because severe judgment's about to come. And that's how it was in Micah's day. Most of the righteous were spared from the worst of the evil days before destruction and captivity because they were dying off. Now, obviously not all righteous people will be spared. God always has a remnant. We see this in the book of Daniel. Um, There were some good men that were in captivity, so they weren't spared. But it's an interesting thought as we consider America's demise. Is there less and less uh, righteous people on the land because God's getting ready to bring severe judgment upon us? I don't know, just something to think about, all right? (laughs) All right, so I wasted your time there. Um, But back to our text here. With the good men and women perished, and with none upright among the people, evil was everywhere. It's using the picture that men were hunted like animals. There was a net spread before them to entrap them, ensnare them, to take advantage of them. Proverbs 1, verses 10 through 15, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, Come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance and we shall fill our houses with spoil and and cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 4. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you. He will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. And then finally, Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not. And there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Micah says here that they were doing evil with both hands. They were openly doing this. There was not hiding one hand from the other. But but it also means this. when, when When you look at the word earnestly, they were practicing wicked with both hands earnestly. It means that they were, they were good at what they did. And, and that sounds silly because they were doing evil, but that's what it means. They were good at what they, they were good at doing evil. They knew, how to, they knew, how, they knew what they were doing. Um, and, and again, I can't help but see the similarities in our day. But they, they were good at it, and there was no shame in it. Um, it was open. It was done well, if you will. And we see again the indictment from chapter 3. If you'll remember all the way back in chapter 3, they were accused of, of wanting nothing but money. The priests, the prophets, the princes, the people, they all were, were just working. They were all just taking advantage of people for money. Uh, the prince and the judge asked for a reward, it says. The great man, or, the, or what that would mean the rich man, uttereth his mischievous desire, and they wrap it up. And that's just a way of saying that they were all in cahoots. They, they, they were all in this together. They were all working at these different levels to take advantage of people below them. And so um, they were wrapping it all together, and they were taking all the money they could. They were taking people's inheritance. And Micah says in the first half of verse 4 that the best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn. 
a thorn hedge. And so the best, <laughs> get this now, Mike is saying the best of the evil. And again, that sounds strange, but uh, out of all this evil, the ones that, that are the best of the evil, among all the evil ones, they're still just a briar. And, and they're ones which seem to be upright in comparison, and, and they're nothing but, but a thorn hedge. They're sharper than a thorn hedge. And any who deal with them are going to be cut, they're going to be hurt, because they are all crooked like thorns and briars. And when you mess with briars, you get entangled. I don't, I don't see a whole lot of briars up here like I did in Georgia. But when I lived in Georgia as a kid and you went out in the woods, you got entangled in briars all the time. And especially if you're running around shooting each other with BB guns, which I don't recommend. I mean, you start getting tangled up in briars and it cuts through your jeans and, and, and you're all cut up in your legs and you're bleeding everywhere and you can't reach down and yank them off because now you're getting entangled. In your, you know what I'm saying? Everybody been tangled up in briars? And, and, and that's the picture here. The more you struggle, the more you get entangled. And, and all it does is it cuts you, it hurts you, it scratches you. It's a painful experience to resist against the evil of their day. And I'm here to tell you the day's coming in America is going to be a painful experience to resist against the evil in our day. And we better start knowing where we stand. And we better start getting our act together. And yet we can't even come to church because there's a virus. Yeah, it just got real, amen? I don't know where we got the idea that Christians are never supposed to get sick. When I was a kid, if somebody had the chicken pox, you went to go play with them. So that you could get sick. I don't know what happened over the last 40 years, but... Well, I heard somebody test positive. I, I, it's no wonder we're so weak in America and Christianity. Now, I'm praying for my filter to work, so that's all I'm going to say. This was the best of the evildoers. And if this was the best of the evildoers, then how was the worst of the evildoers? Amen. The Bible is clear what we do with briars and thorns. We burn them. 2 Samuel 23, verses 6 and 7, But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands, but the man, shall, but the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of spear. In other words, you can't get close to these briars and thorns unless you're like in, in a knight's armor. Amen. That's the only way to keep from getting entangled and cut. But it says, They shall be utterly burned with fire, in the same place. Hebrews 6, 8, But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now, in the context of a vineyard, right? God looked at Israel. He called them His vineyard. We're, we're seeing that briars and thorns are coming up and they're good for nothing. They're only good for burning away. And when we think about the parable of the sower, it's interesting that when it talks about thorns, it connects them to the rich. Because that's what we're seeing here. The, the rich are taking advantage of people. Luke 8, verses, uh, verse 8, Luke 8, verse 14. And that which fell among the thorns, talking about the seed of the Word of God, that which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard go forth and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Thorns are dangerous spiritually. They choke us out. In Isaiah chapter 5, God likened Israel to His vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He looked for grapes. He brought forth wild grapes. God asked, what more could I have done for you? I've done everything I know to do for you. I've I, I put a wall about you. I've hedged you up. I've dung the garden. I've done everything I know to do to make you fruitful. What more could I have done in Israel than I've done? 
And so God says, I'm going to take away the hedge. I'm through. I'm done messing with it. I'm taking away the hedge. I'm going to break down the wall. It's going to be trodden down and lay waste. And in its place, God said, briars and thorns were going to come up. Isaiah 5, 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment. I have, I have told thee what is good for you to do justly. God said, I looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. I looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry. And I can't help but see America in all of what we're reading in this old prophecy. You understand that Americans were given every advantage, unlike any nation before us. I mean, we, we have been given every advantage. We were once like God's pleasant plant. We were His vineyard. We were founded upon godly principles. And when there should have been grapes we started to produce wild grapes. And now we're watching as God begins to withdraw His hand. And all that's coming up is briars and thorns. It's choking out righteous judgments. It's choking out merciful people. There's no righteousness in the land, so it seems. When we talk about this nationally, it sure seems that way. And it's just a matter of time until America is no different than the end of verse 4. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh, now shall be their perplexity. The watchman is generally agreed is talking about the, the righteous prophets, the one who came from God speaking truth, pronouncing judgment, crying aloud, lifting up their voice like a trumpet, showing people their transgressions. They, they came as God told them to proclaim a message. They warned of judgment to come. But all the while, Israel continued to fill up their iniquity. They weren't listening. They wanted prophets for hire. They wanted to pay people to say what they wanted to hear. God's prophets have been warning America of the judgment to come. Amen. Nobody's listening. And our iniquity is filling up before God. All the warnings are going unheeded. In fact, now you're finding in the church house, uh, even in, from the pulpits, the message of everything's just fine. And it's no different than what happened in Israel's day. You had all these prophets, so-called, telling uh, the kings, everything's going to be fine, you're going to prevail, God's on our side. And then you had these rogue individuals like Micah who were crying out saying, no, no, God is not pleased. God is not happy with you. You are in your sins and judgment is going to come. It says, now shall be their perplexity. And you see, we act like everything's just fine. We, we, we act like we can continue with great wickedness in high places without consequence. And listen, we do this in our lives individually. We still play around with sin and act like it's okay. Somehow there's this idea that America is going to survive legislating abortion, same-sex marriage, transgenderism. Like somehow God's just going to wink at that. He's not. Listen, God does not look down upon America and smile. Do you hear what I'm saying? We better start getting real. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, For when they shall say... Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. 
And uh, finally, there's a play on words here. Even the best of the wicked doers are likened to briars and thorns which entangle. And the end of this verse says that there would be perplexity. The root word, that Hebrew word, the root word for perplexity, it means to entangle. And so the picture is, just as you entangled people, God's going to entangle you. And, of course, it goes back to what I said last week. It's a picture of you, you reap what you sow. And this is where we got to be careful. Unless there's repentance, the crop's going to come up. And we're going to reap what we sow. And we'll be tangled in the very thing that we've tried um, to entangle others in. Albert Barnes wrote this. They should be caught in their own snare. They had perplexed their paths and should find no outlet with those briars and thorns. Psalm 9, verses 15 and 16, The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which He executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. I don't know that I want to get into verses six, uh, 5 and 6 here, but you know what? We just need to know that God is in control. Amen? We do live in a day when it's getting worse. It's, it's becoming more wicked. But I want, you to, I want you to rest assured, God is aware of what's going on. He's not confused. He's not taken by surprise. Amen? He's not sitting up there going, oh man, I didn't know that uh, Biden was going to be the president. Amen? He knew. And so he's in complete control at all times. And though it may get far worse for God's children, would you please just learn that God knows how to watch over his own? Man, I've been preaching this since March of 2020, and it seems like it has not stuck. God can take care of you. You're his child. If he's powerful enough to save you, he's powerful enough to keep you. Somebody said, we're not promised a smooth sailing, but we are promised a safe landing. In this world, ye shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We must enter the kingdom through much tribulation. Tribulation is appointed to every child of God. Don't act like somehow we're, we're, we're going to escape being sick. All right, anyway, I'm going to leave it there because I can tell I'm, I'm, I'm not going over well. Let's pray. 